Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. We sang a few moments ago that song, Draw Me Nearer, Nearer, Blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. And it's such an appropriate song to sing on a day in which we study together Matthew chapter 19. So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, where we are going to be reminded of and to celebrate the access that we have to God through Christ, where he can say, and we can say to him, draw me nearer, God, to you through Christ. It's a great privilege, and we're going to be reminded of that today. It's it's a truth that our faith obviously is rooted in and based on, but we need to be reminded of it very often, that we do have unlimited access to the Lord. And we need to be reminded of it because in the world in which we live, the more famous and powerful and wealthy someone is, typically the less approachable and available they are at the same time. None of us can stroll into the prime minister's office tomorrow and ask for a few minutes of his time. We can't do that. None of us can send a text to Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, and say, hey, Jeff, could you check on a package for me? It's missing. We don't get to do that. And even if we wanted to, we couldn't schedule a dinner with the Pope or a round of golf with Elon Musk. We don't get to do things like that. And we'd say, why? Why don't we get to do those things? Well, because in the world we live in, one measure of importance is inaccessibility. If someone is important, they are backed off from access to the general public. And today we've sang about it, and we're going to celebrate it in the Word today, that that is not the case with Jesus Christ. It's not the case with Him. You know, the most important, the most powerful, the most significant, the the wealthiest person who has ever lived, ever walked this earth, offers complete access to Himself, unhindered access to Himself, to anyone who wants it. In fact, earlier in our study of Matthew's Gospel, it was Jesus who said, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Jesus, later in John chapter 7, verse 37, that says, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me, and I will give them something to drink. We could say that Jesus really has an open-door policy. Come to me, all, anyone. You all have unhindered access to me. And yet, even though that's true... Many, many people, including, unfortunately and tragically, many Christians today, don't take advantage of the invitation to himself that Jesus offers. Instead, it's we who put barriers between him and us. It's we that hinder the access we have to Christ. And and in so doing, we actually exchange the peace, joy, and security that comes with being in his presence. We exchange that for the fear, fatigue, and insecurity that comes with being estranged from him. Well, today, as we go to this text in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13, 
We're going to be reminded of the unhindered access that we have to Jesus Christ. And that is an unhindered access that we have now and forever as those who trust in Jesus. But we're also going to be reminded of some of the ways that we can ignore or complicate or obscure that access that we have to him. Okay, so let me read the text for us. Matthew chapter 19, as I said, starting in verse 13, and then we will unpack it together. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In this passage, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he creates a contrast between a group of children and a man of wealth. He creates this contrast between these two groups, and it's really not hard to see that it's the kids who provide us with an example of unhindered access to Jesus, right? They just come into his presence, and he protects that access that they have. Notice in verse 13 that the children, it says, were brought to Jesus. This is a passive verb. They are brought. They are completely dependent. You can almost picture that some are led by the hand and some are even carried into his presence. They are brought to Jesus. These minors, they don't come on the basis of their abilities, on their reputation, their worth, their morality, their credentials. They don't come on the basis of any of those things because they have none of those things. They're brought to him. Why? so that he might lay his hands on them, again, passive, and be prayed for by him, passive. So really, the children, we could say, are just along for the ride here. They are just brought to him. They are brought to be blessed by him, brought to him to be blessed by him. And after the disciples try and place security for him, bouncers for him, whoa, 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 and rebuke the children, you stay away, he's got more important things to do. After they do that, Jesus responds in, in verse 14 and corrects them. Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now this will become clearer as we examine the other side of the contrast in a few moments, but for now, notice who's given unhindered access to Jesus and the coming kingdom. 
It's children who have done nothing but rest in those who brought them and rest in him who blessed them. That's all they've done. They are welcomed. They are prayed for. They are unhindered in his presence. I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, I am filled with what I hope and pray is a righteous jealousy. I want what these children, by no fault of their own, got to experience, brought into the presence of the Savior. Other, other gospel accounts say that he held them, he touched them, he laid his hands on them. I, I want that. I'm sure many of you do as well. I think about even just the week ahead. I know tomorrow at some point I will open up my calendar app and look at the appointments and the due dates and try to get my head around how these things will be accomplished in the coming week. And then I might open the family bank account and say, okay, how are we going to make this happen? Are we still on track as a family? And, and what are the bills coming in? The things have to go out. I'm going to try to understand all of those things. And then I'll be reminded or I'll remind myself of all the to-do lists around the house. I'll remind myself of the things to do around the house that need to get done. I'll also be reminded of the seemingly unobtainable responsibilities I have as a parent and as a spouse and the ways I'm falling short of those things. Then I'll be reminded maybe online or on TV of the state of the world. Ugh. And then I'll go to the Word and I'll be reminded of the state of my heart. Ugh. Again, still sin to deal with, confession to make, apologies to give, more Bible to study, prayers to offer. I'm tired. I'm tired. I know you are as well, or can be. I think Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And I think, okay, either Jesus is lying, or I'm doing something wrong. Because I don't feel restful. I don't feel unburdened. So where is this breaking down? I want what these children got to experience. That's what I want carried to the loving embrace of Jesus to receive blessing, affirmation, and intercession. You know, I want that tranquility and that simplicity of that moment, and I want that security. I want that unhindered proximity to Christ. And I'm sure that I'm not alone. So the question is, you know, why don't we have it? That's the question. You know, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, why don't we experience what these passive little humans got to experience? Again, righteous jealousy, I hope. But why do they get it and I don't? What is it that I'm missing? Well, as we keep reading, we get some of the answers. As we find in this rich man, an example of what hinders access to Jesus. We've seen a picture of unhindered access. Now we see a picture of kind of the things that do actually hinder that access that we do otherwise have. And as we go into verse 16 and following in the text, we immediately feel the difference that Matthew creates in this contrast. See, while the children were brought to Jesus to receive from Jesus, the man, he comes on his own to find out what he could do. Look at verse 16 again. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? is a drastically different tone from those first three verses until now. You feel the difference immediately. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that this man was disingenuous. In fact, I don't think that's the case. As we keep reading, I think it becomes clear. He's a sincere person. He really wants what he's asking for. As a Jew in the first century, he knows, it seems, that there is eternal life to be had. And he wants that. He wants that, rightly so. And he's heard that this 
Jesus guy may have some insights on how to obtain it. And so he goes to find them. He wants to know. But we also see that he assumes that there's something to accomplish, something to, to contribute, to check off the religious to-do list in order to obtain that eternal life. And we see this contrast. Well, the children were passive, passive, passive. This guy is active, and he is ready to get active. Tell me what to do. I am ready to do it. I want that life. Give me the to-do list, and I will get it done. What good thing shall I do? And Jesus, because he knows all things and knowing this man's heart, as well as seeing another teachable opportunity for his disciples, he responds to the man in verse 17. Why are you asking me about what is good? There was only one who is good. I think this is interesting because it's the man who brought up goodness, right? What good thing shall I do? And so Jesus takes the opportunity to hint at the fact that he's asking the right person. You know, you want to know about goodness? There's only one who's good, and that's God, and guess what? That's me. So you're asking the right person, and now he's going to shift from that and use that divine authority to expose that which hinders access to himself, exemplified in this man. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you were to go back and find those commandments in the Old Testament, you would find that many of them are from the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. But there's one that's randomly from Leviticus. The last one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It, and that's very intentional on Jesus' part. He's not just pointing to the Ten Commandments, but he's pointing to the whole Torah by grabbing one from elsewhere. So really, the answer to the question, which ones is all of them, all of the Torah? Which ones must I keep to inherit eternal life? Take your pick and all of them. You must keep them all. Now, the, the response to that is shocking, perhaps, to us, where the man says, all these things I have kept. Now again, I don't think he's being a braggart or anything. I think he is, according to Pharisaic law, I think he has lived a life, it seems like, where he has kept the traditions of the Pharisees. He thinks he has kept these, but we know because we've studied Matthew that this guy has probably missed the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus ratcheted up the demands of the law, didn't he? He said, now you've heard, thou shalt not murder. And guys like this rich man would have said, yeah, I've done that. I've actually avoided murdering someone. Congratulations, me. But Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, you hate someone. It's the same thing. You might as well have murdered them. That's ratcheting up the, the ante, isn't it? And then he goes on to say, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And this guy might say, yeah, I haven't done that either. But I tell you, you lust. And that is as good as adultery. So he is ratcheting up the demands of the law. But this man apparently missed that. And like for many first century Jews, this man believed that salvation came through obedience to the law and that the law was obeyable. What Jesus has shown in Matthew and will be, continue to be played out in the New Testament when Paul comes along and says, the law was a schoolmaster. It was put there to show that you actually can't keep it. But this man, led by the Pharisaic tradition of the time, thought, I can keep these laws. And so he can say with a clear conscience, I've kept these things. And yet what's interesting here, the back half of verse 20, the last little phrase, even though he's kept all of these things, he knows that there's still something missing. He says, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? 
I've done everything. From a, from a boy, I've tried to be obedient. I've kept the moral law. I've been diligent in my sacrifices, everything. And yet, in this man's life, there was still a nagging question that got him out of that bed that morning to get him to find Jesus, to go and ask this question. This question that gnaws at him. There's something here that is missing. And like many people who are convinced that eternal life comes through doing good, there is always that nagging, terrifying question. How much good is good enough? That's always the question. If we are saved by doing good things, the question becomes, what is the standard for goodness? How much kindness is kind enough? How much do I have to honor my parents? What's the threshold there for eternal life? How many sins do I have to avoid, and to what extent do I have to avoid them? In their honest and vulnerable moments, those who understand salvation this way, the way that this man understood salvation, they have to ask themselves, what am I still lacking? There's still something lacking. And that might be you. You've always thought, or tragically maybe even been taught, that access to Jesus and his coming kingdom are all contingent upon your performance, upon your goodness, upon your level of contrition, upon your level of commitment, your attendance, your obedience. It's all based on you. And if you really dig down and really love the Lord, really commit to him, really repent of sins, and in that really, there's a whole lot of, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's been really enough. I never actually know, but maybe you've been taught that. And if that's you, then you may know the insecurity, fear, and desperation that this man was feeling as a rich man that came to find Jesus and say, I'm missing something. You've got to tell me, what must I do to inherit this eternal life? Now, Jesus puts his finger right on the heart of the issue, which actually is the man's heart. Verse 21 and following, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete... Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, we want to be very clear here. Jesus is not teaching that salvation, the eternal life, comes through a vow of poverty. That's not what he's teaching. Comes through charity. What Jesus is highlighting in this man is what we saw already in verse 16 that we already read, that he's coming to do something to gain eternal life, and so Jesus gives him something to do that he knows he won't be able to do in hopes that he will learn, I can't do these things. I've heard of families that have had teenagers in their home where the teenager rebels against the family, and there comes a point where some parents say, we're going to cut you off. The, the child is like, I can do all of this. You don't know what you're talking about, mom and dad. You have nothing to add to my life. I have got this figured out. And it, come, it comes to a point where the parents say, okay, we're going to cut you off. Sometimes you even have to put them out of the house for a season. But it's not so that they are damaged. It's not because they believe that this child can make it on their own. It's in hopes that they will realize that they can't. They go and they can't do it. And so then they come back to where the help is and where the safety is. This man comes and says, what must I do? And Jesus says, oh. You can't do anything. I'll give you the one thing that I know you can't do and send you away to figure that out. And this man goes away grieving. This man is trusting in his obedience 
his morality, his goodness, and his possessions. He wants eternal life, and he knows he's lacking something necessary, but he's also just as sure that what he's lacking is something that he can contribute, something that that he can do, not something that he needs to give up or sacrifice. He knows that, just as many people know and believe, that you get out what you put in. You don't get out what you give up. That doesn't make any sense. Verse 23, And Jesus said now to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This verse makes sure that we notice the contrast to the children before, because it really is a mirror image of verse 14, where Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. In both verses, verse 14 and verse 23, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the future access to the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we're in a portion of Matthew's gospel where Jesus has now turned away from the nation of Israel to start training his disciples and preparing them for what lies ahead. And here he speaks to his disciples about this kingdom of heaven and access to it. Those like the children, he says, will have access, verse 14. Those like the rich man will not have access, verse 23. And there's something else that ties these two verses together. In verse 14, Jesus says, do not hinder the children. Do not hinder them. And in verse 23, he says, it is hard for a rich man. Those two statements come from the exact same Greek word, meaning to hinder or to prevent. And so what's happening here is we're to feel this contrast. He's put this kingdom of heaven is at stake. He's talking to his disciples. He says, how do you get this? Well, those like the children, they are unhindered. They are unprevented. Jesus says, let them alone. Let them come. Put nothing in their way. They have total access to me. But those like the rich man, however, they hinder themselves. They put a stumbling block between them and Christ. They hinder themselves with their working. They prevent themselves with their obsession with doing and contributing. And and we know that very little has changed in 2,000 years. Many today, like this rich man, never believe in Christ, never gain that precious saving access to the Savior because they have hindered themselves with a false view of goodness and righteousness. They've come to believe that eternal life comes through obedience and performance when in reality it is built upon Jesus' obedience and Jesus' performance. We come to him as sinners bankrupt, bringing nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary in the first place. That's what we contribute. And Jesus came and lived the life that we need to live and died in our place. And we are carried to him, carried to his grace in the arms of faith. We are passive in that. We throw ourselves on his mercy and say, save me, give me the salvation you offer. And that is what we bring. We don't bring anything other than that. A pastor I once read, he told this story. He said, when I was a teenager, I became fascinated, appalled, and grieved by the literature of the Holocaust. One scene that haunts me is a picture from Auschwitz. Above the entryway to the concentration camp where the words are bet macht free. It means work makes free. Work will liberate you and give you freedom. Above the gate of the concentration camp, as people went in, blazing above their heads. The pastor continues, it was a lie, a false hope, 
The Nazis made the people believe hard work would equal liberation. But the promised, quote-unquote, liberation was horrifying suffering and even death. He concluded, our bet macht free. One reason that phrase haunts me is because it is the spiritual lie of this age. It is a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It is a false hope, an impossible dream for many people in the world. They believe their good works will be great enough to outweigh their bad works, allowing them to stand before God in eternity and say, you owe me the right to enter into your heaven. But it's the love of God that liberates. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that liberates. He died in my place, and I am free. Works do not equal liberation. Works do not equal freedom. Works do not equal access to Jesus Christ. That was the mistake of this rich young man. What can I do? Look at the children. They're carried to me, to be blessed by me. Be like the children. So we've seen in this text already a picture of this liberated access to Jesus in these kids. We've also seen an example of someone believing the lie that works makes freedom in this rich man. Now as we close, let's remind ourselves of the power that grants access to Jesus. Because if it's not us contributing works, it's obviously got to be his power that grants us access to him. And that's what we find as we finish this passage. Verse 24, Jesus continues, it says, Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. Men like this, Jesus is saying, pointing to the back of this rich man wandering away, men like this cannot enter God's kingdom. He will not find what his heart aches for. He will not find it. Not surprisingly, this concerns the disciples, who perhaps they look at this man, they saw him come up, it concerns them because they see themselves a little bit in this guy, and they thought for sure, wow, this is a shining star. This is an example for us to follow. And so they ask the question in verse 25, they say, then who, honestly, Jesus, who can be saved? It's not this guy. Who can be saved? Do we have a chance? It's a good question. And mercifully, Jesus responds in verse 26. And looking at them, I wonder what the look in his eye was at that moment as well. Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It doesn't make sense to the disciples what they've just been learning. It doesn't make sense that the insignificant children would have unhindered access to Jesus, to the Messiah and the kingdom. That doesn't make sense. I mean, that's why the disciples rebuked the children in the first place. Get them away. Get them out of the, the, the way. Let the important people come forward. Let the important people have access to Jesus. It makes sense that God helps those who help themselves, right? Isn't that biblical? We say it enough. It must be, isn't it? I mean, it's quite, no, it's not biblical. That's not biblical at all. God helps those who help themselves. No. I mean, that a wealthy, successful, sincere, obedient Jew is hopeless is counterintuitive to them and, and worrying. And this guy was an exemplar of faithfulness. Sincere, what must I do? I will do anything, Lord. I mean, if that guy has no hope, who does? That's the question. The disciples obviously saw themselves in him, and I'll be honest, so do I. I see myself in that rich young man. Uh, maybe you do as well. I can feel the pull to work for my salvation in my heart or to contribute, to pay him back. I feel that pull. I want to contribute. 
I'm in a meritocracy. I, I live in a world that, that rewards effort, and I can feel that sneaking into my relationship with the Lord as well. I want to do things for access to Jesus. I feel the pressure to, to measure my Christian maturity by my religiosity and, and the blessings that he's bestowed on me. You know how many times I've read the Bible? You know how many hours I pray a day? You know how many? And there's always this, these more things to do, these things to confess, these people to disciple. There's always things to do. And as I ramp up this list, all of a sudden I find myself climbing up on that camel and aiming for that needle. That's what happens. Now, we've talked about salvation today. No one can come to the Lord unless they come like children and humble themselves, accepting the free gift of salvation. That's true. But even for those of us who know the Lord, we can still hinder our access to him, that beautiful fellowship, the peace and everything, by heaping between us things to do, works, efforts. We never get to enjoy the grace of just being brought to him. Thank God that the power that grants access to Jesus is his and not mine or yours. With God, all things are possible. As Matthew, inspired by God's spirit, sets up this contrast here between the helpless, passive children and the wealthy, active man, you and I are being invited to stop striving and start resting. Just being reminded of that reality, that we have access to the most important, most significant, eternally so person in the history of humanity. We have full access if we would just stop striving and start resting in that reality. Put down the religious to-do list, the expectations, and allow God to bring you to himself. Stop striving and start resting. That's how we enjoy unhindered access to the king. That's how we enjoy it. It's grace upon grace upon grace. For those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, for their salvation. Stop striving after the impossible. You will never be good enough. The standard is not pretty good. The standard is not a decent human. The standard is not someone who is charitable. That's not the standard for eternal life. The standard is holiness, perfection, absolute purity. And guess what? You don't measure up. Join the club. Bunch of sinners here. We all fall short, as Andrew reminded us a moment ago. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's lots of company down here. So stop striving after the impossible. Stop trying to squeeze that camel through the eye of the needle. Instead, rest in the fact that Jesus did it all for you. He said, if you believe in me, you will live even if you die. That's the question. Do you believe in him or not? So stop striving and start resting in him. Trust Christ today. And for those of us who have trusted Christ, but maybe there's some in here who are stuck in sin, where sin has crept its tentacles around your life and it is squeezing and the enemy is whispering in your ear, well, that's it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back trying to get through that needle. Can't do it. You are too far gone. In fact, I don't even think you were ever saved. That's the enemy. Now, first tip, maybe don't believe the father of lies. Pretty good, right? Pretty good tip. He is a liar, a liar from the pit of hell, and he's going back there. Listen, he is coming to you and whispering nonsense in your ear. Stop striving to break the hold of sin in your life in your own power. Instead, we rest. We are being invited to rest in him who paid for all the sin and has the power to free us. 
I cannot white-knuckle my way away from sin, but I can trust in the fact that God has forgiven me, past, present, and future, for everything I could do. And I have the liberation and the power of he that is in me that is greater than he that is in the world to go into the world and break the bonds of sin and not believe the lie that I am nothing. Read Ephesians 1. I am more than I can even comprehend in Christ. Not because I am anything exciting, but because Christ is everything and I'm hidden in him. So if you're struggling with sin, stop striving and start resting in the finished work of Christ and the joy and freedom that brings. Now for those of us who have the tendency to be legalistic, it's probably just me, but just in case there's one other person here that has that tendency to be legalistic, to think that we're contributing something to the merit of our salvation. Stop striving for God's approval through your morality and finding pleasure in your worldly accomplishments. Start resting in the finished accomplishment of Christ's cross and empty tomb. For all of us, we're being invited here to stop striving like the the man, certain that we can bring something of significance to Jesus to earn access. We can't. Instead, start resting like the powerless, statusless children we are, brought to the grace of God on the arms of faith, blessed with abundant life. Stop striving and start resting. This is a truth that we need to continually remind ourselves of. We oftentimes say, by grace, through faith, in Christ. And that's true. But do we live like it's true? That I bring nothing to the table. If I contributed works to my salvation, then works can lose my salvation. I don't want that, and that's not what the Bible teaches. But because I am saved by the sheer grace of God, it's that grace that keeps me saved and well, and propels me forward in sanctification and service of him. It's not that believers, we understand that we're saved, we get brought to Jesus, and then we sit on our hands and do nothing. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying the works that we do, the service we engage in, is fueled, is motivated by the liberty of the knowledge that we were brought to him because of nothing we've done. And when we realize the riches we have in Christ in spite of the wretchedness of my heart, how can I not serve him with joy and thanksgiving, but not because it adds anything to my access to Jesus? He went through the heavenlies, says in Ephesians chapter 4, and sat down at the right hand of God. The veil was torn. We have complete access. Rest in that reality. Stop striving and working and just rest in that reality. One author writes this to contrast it because this is one of the things that makes Christianity so unique and so beautiful is the grace of God and the freedom of salvation. This author says this, and I read this as, as we close. All religions require something that needs to be done or followed before one can be saved or enjoy an eternal reward in the afterlife. Buddhism teaches that one must follow the noble eightfold path. Islam teaches that one must keep the five pillars and lead a righteous life. Hinduism teaches that one must adhere to the four yogas. Sikhism teaches that one must follow his own path and lead a disciplined life. Judaism teaches that one must live a moral life according to the Torah. Mormonism teaches that one must be baptized and obey laws and ordinances. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that one must serve and obey Jehovah. Roman Catholicism teaches that one must keep the seven sacraments. Legalistic Protestantism teaches that one must submit to God and obey the Bible. Liberal Protestantism teaches that one must do good to others. While every other religion says, do, biblical Christianity says, done. 
Grace is God doing everything necessary for our salvation so that we don't have to do anything to be saved. It has been done by Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. We come as children, not as the rich man. We surrender to him and accept with thanksgiving and joy the gift of eternal life. That's why Jesus can say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray and ask him to help us do just that today. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.